Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word. Jeff Lemon with you and a slightly different kind of show today. We've got Gideon Haig on The Final Word. He'll be in England along with us soon for what will be his seventh Ashes tour, plus all of the ones that he's covered at home. He spent decades doing that and also researching all of the decades that he wasn't at Ashes Test matches. A lot of that has come together in a new book that he's releasing, which is called On the Ashes, The Greatest Sporting Contest of All. And it's a collection of work from across his career about the Ashes, but it goes all the way back to the very beginning as well. It's a a series of different kinds of pieces of writing, character portraits, storytelling, in a way that clicks with us and and what we do on Storytime as well, the the, uh, enjoyment of pulling vignettes out of cricket history, um, as well as talking about and thinking about the current day. So all of that will be be in the conversation. We'll start with the book and then broaden out in the same vein that we've had conversations with Daniel Bredig and Osman Samiuddin recently about the current state of world cricket, the way things might be going. Gideon's always someone with an interesting perspective on those things. And more broadly as well, we talk about creative fulfilment, uh, about the, the lure of spending time immersed in history and a whole range of other byways that we'll wander down as well. So one other point of difference, we're having this conversation in a cafe. Um, we decided to do it organically rather than sit down in a, a formal interview kind of situation. So it, it'll it'll add some sound texture. Hopefully it can feel like you're sitting across the table eavesdropping on the conversation and if you want to throw in your two cents you can always find a channel to do that if you want to support the show we're on patreon.com slash the final word and doing that can get you involved with our online community as well Gideon's book is out through Allen and Unwin. It'll be released on the 6th of June. You should be able to find pre-orders if you're interested in having a look at that and getting your name in the queue ahead of time. Right then, let's go to the final word with Gideon Haig. I suppose we should start with Mario's. Uh, your choice of this place to meet up and have a conversation because I remember coming here just out of high school, so 20 years ago, yeah, right, um, right. and thinking this was, uh, if, if you don't know Melbourne, it, it's it's an Italian restaurant, it's an institution on Brunswick Street. It's not a fancy place, but it seems like it's always been here. I thought this was the height of sophistication. I remember coming in here for breakfast at about 8 in the morning after having been out all night, and they served us Campari with grapefruit juice, right. and I thought, this is this is it. Yeah. I have reached out. Yeah. What's your connection here? Oh, it's just that I'm so unimaginative. It's like the only place I can ever think of coming. If I need to suggest somewhere, I choose either this or Vincent the Dog in Drummond Street, and um, uh, I feel very comfortable. It's usually a reasonable amount of room, and you know I've got friends that I 
of, of 20 and 30 years standing that I've only ever come to Mario's with this. Where are we going? We don't even mention it now. Was Brunswick Street Fitzroy, was that part of your beat um, as a... I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what it was like in the... Because I've known it since about the turn of the century, I suppose. Yeah. I remember reading about sort of 90s Fitzroy, um, Eric Dando's book Snail and, and yeah. a couple of others. Yeah. I read that, that book too. That have yeah. that... They, they capture the era, I suppose. Was this somewhere that you were hanging around? Yeah, I, don't know. Well, I, was, I started over in Parkville and Carlton, that side, so I tended not to move much beyond Ligon Street. But, uh, the barrier. The barrier. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I got used to it and I'm comfortable on this side of town. Basically, lived on this side of town since I came from Geelong when I was 18 years old. And apart from seven years in North Caulfield, which reminded me that I'm a North of the River person. This is pretty much where I've stayed. And I just don't deal well, very well with change, Jeff. <laughs> the North and South of the River thing is fascinating yes, to me, yeah, Melbourne. It's yeah. so distinct. It is. It's, it's such, yeah. And I suppose Richmond's kind of um, excluded from it somehow, even though it is North of the it's River. It's not exotic. North of the city. Yeah. But, but, but if you're any, from any other, anywhere that is directly north or directly south, that's yeah. the line. Yeah. It's the line in a lot of cities, but it's particularly so in Melbourne. Well, the other thing for me is that I don't drive, so I like everywhere to be within walking distance. I'm a, I'm a good walker, but I like to know where I'm going so that I can think while I'm walking along. And, uh, yeah, Burroughs, I guess if I, if I have a beat, this is one of the locations. You know, readings, the Nova... The kind of the three points in the compass, frankly. <laughs> so we're talking about your book, Gideon Haig on the Ashes, which does what it says on the tin. The greatest sporting contest of all. Was that you wanting to no. throw down a marker, or was that your <laughs> no. publisher saying no, we, need, no. we need something controversial on not the cover? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I think um, yeah, Alan and I want to ask me for a compendium of, of Ashes stuff. Looking forward to the next series and. I thought, well, I'll just have a rummage round in the dustbin, which, you know, over the years I've been inclined to do. And it did occur to me that I've... This will, I think this will be my seventh Ashes tour coming up, my seventh tour of England. And I've been watching it since Boxing Day Test Match of 1974. That was the first day of Test cricket I went to. And I started reporting it in 1990 when, um, when I covered the first Test in, in Brisbane of that series. So it, it, it is a bit of a shock to all of a sudden realise that you have been around for so damn long and it's probably a little bit time, about time that you shrugged off that anxious new boy feeling that you've always had. It's certainly not as long as a lot of the stories that are told in the book so it's, no, it's no. basically a collection of case studies right so yeah. the, the 20th century entries are about matches yes, but pretty much yes. everything before that yes. it's about people yes yeah. um, and it's yeah. going all the way back to Charles Bannerman yes. to start with yeah. Yeah. through Billy Midwinter, yes. through yeah. Albert yeah. Trot, yeah. Harry Trot, the, the early characters in the game, and it's it's just pulling out the vignettes. And I'm interested in that. You know, obviously, it's something that we do on our history show, something yeah. that a lot of cricket yeah. writers have done. There are so many stories to tell, and it's so easy to to sort of pull one out and tear it down to whatever space you have available. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that was probably the first thing that really captivated me about cricket, this sense that it had been going on for so long, and so long before I was born. There was this huge tradition that I'd been born into, and that meant that cricket didn't have to stop when it wasn't being played, when it wasn't being watched. Right. You, could, you, could, you could participate in cricket in all sorts of different ways, and as a, as a writing subject, it kind of had... You know, onion layers of meaning and interpretation. And it also gave you a sort of a common language with a lot of people. Um, if you use the word 1956 with a cricket fan, they know exactly what that means. Or 1902 or 1948. It's a shorthand for, for so much else. And it actually stirs quite deep and, and atavistic feelings at the same time. And I guess because cricket stopped. I mean, cricket did yeah. used to stop. It used yes. to you would have the home summer and then after that there would be months of nothing happening yeah. and then maybe you'd get newspaper reports yeah. from England but it's not like you could yeah. switch on the TV and watch 
whoever England was oh. playing in the Northern Summer. Maybe you could get it on the radio, but it, it was. Yeah. It, it, you would have been much more hungry for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you around. have to stop. Yeah. As we were saying before, you actually have to turn the cricket off yeah. in order to take uh, cognizance of, of what's happened. Yeah. Uh, otherwise you remember nothing. Yeah, otherwise you remember nothing. like Homer Simpson in the ironic punishment division yeah, yeah. when they're feeding him all the donuts <laughs> in the world. It feels like that, yeah. being a cricket fan mm. at the moment. It does, it does. And, you know, I think in order of precedence... I like playing most, I like watching second, and I like writing about a third. And the playing has gone on being fundamental to my experience of the game. Whenever I've felt jaded by what I'm watching, yep. uh, whenever I've felt fatigued by the direction of the game and disillusioned with it, all I have to do is go and play. And uh, hmm. that's always helped recalibrated my senses of it. Now I go back and I think, yeah, this is why I love it. This is actually why I love it. There was a period where I didn't play it in the late 80s, early 90s, and my general interest did wane. But when I went back to playing it for the Arabs 30 years ago this year, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. that's it. That's it. That's interesting to me, like, given the number of former players we talk to who yeah. get very jaded with the game yeah. towards the end yeah. of their professional yeah. careers but end up playing it again at some lower yeah. level. You know, maybe they yep. have a few years out. Yep. Yep. But almost inevitably, they yeah. end up back at club cricket somewhere, yeah. playing and talking about learning how to enjoy it again, yeah. learning how to yeah. divorce it, I suppose, from their sense of self-worth or their professional yes. development yes. or whatever yes. it is, and just play for yeah. the sake of playing. The guy who I was fascinated by when I met him a few years ago was Francis Burke, who played footy for Richmond. And uh, I ended up playing against him for a few years when he was playing for Canterbury. And, you know, I came across him one day and you know, got curious. He actually came over and introduced himself to me at, at tea time. I said, oh, interesting that you're back playing cricket. And he wasn't a great cricketer. He was a good, you know, good serviceable club cricketer. And I said, so what, what brought you back to the game? He said, well, you know, when I, when I got scooped up by football, I kind of had to abandon cricket, which I'd always loved. And when my kids grew up and left home and I stopped working so much, I thought, ah, oh, I actually need people in my life. I need sporting people. I need young sporting people in my life. So he came down to, to Canterbury and got very heavily involved down there. He was an office holder, had held all the offices at, uh, at various times and you know, put a lot into the game, which he hadn't actually extracted himself earlier on. Just, just one of nature's givers. And uh, I thought, yeah, it's a good advertisement for the game that it can provide such solace for, uh, or such reassurance of continuity for someone who has experienced sport at the very highest level. I often think about this, and it's quite strange in a way that you have with any professional sport, particularly with commentary and media reporting on it, you have all of these older men and old men sitting around oh, watching yeah. young men yeah. do yeah. their thing. Yeah. It's a curious kind of relationship yeah. in a way. And then projecting all of this emotional significance and all yes. of this value onto yes. it. Kind yes. of, uh, painting them up as being heroes, as being the doers of great deeds, when you know the young men might be 19 and not have a clue about any yeah. sort of broader significance yeah. of what they're doing, yeah. they're just doing it. Um, but all of the meaning sort of comes from us as the people watching on. It's a strange yeah. dynamic in a way. Yeah, but I mean, I feel that I feel that dynamic when I watch them too. You know, when I watch a young player, because the experience of facing a ball from 22 yards that duel of egos, um, that, that concentrated contest that only really the two participants understand, happens everywhere. It doesn't matter whether it's a club game or a test match or an IPL game. That experience is common across the game. And, and the, 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 the depth of fear and anxiety, the sense of joy when you do succeed, the sense of disappointment when you fail. I don't think it matters whatever level you're playing at. Maybe it's easier. Maybe it's actually easier to cope with when you're very good. <laughs> All I do know is when I play cricket and I don't succeed, it ruins my week. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> I let go of... I never had to worry about that. When you start off being absolutely terrible, oh, yeah. it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, Anything's but I'm a success. absolutely terrible too. But that somehow that doesn't make a difference. Somehow that sort of confirms your own worst fears about yourself. Yeah. 
it resonates with that deep feeling of personal inadequacy. And you have that occasional feeling of, say, yeah. hitting one over cover for yes, four, and, yeah. and then you have to wait three years to feel The glimpse again. of the possible. Yeah. The glimpse of the possible. So the, it's interesting as a collection, because, you know, generally when there's a collection from a writer, it's kind of a, a celebration of the writing or the writer. Yeah, um, yes. It's, a, it's a, an exercise in fating the writer. Yeah. This is... It seems to me entirely about the subject. It's not about yeah, oh, the writing yeah. per se. It's, yeah. a, it's about putting a sequence together that makes a story. There's also a lot of obituaries. There's, there's, yes, there's quite, yes. quite a maudlin yeah, thread yeah. running through it in terms of um, the number of stories that end up in asylums. And I suppose everybody has to die, so yeah. um, most of your character studies will end up in the ground. As a kid, I was very interested in history, mm. and that was one of the reasons why I found Ashes Cricket utterly fascinating, because it was an avenue to history. It was a narrow aperture through which to view history, but it did allow you to kind of commune with uh, an ancient community and did allow you to connect with Australia in a, in a, in a very particular and, and focused way. But uh, you know, in some senses, cricket can be a great education for you. Well, it can be a... It's, it, I suppose, personally, it's something that got me back into historical yeah. research. Yeah. You know, I did my yep. study and training in that area. My dad's a historian, my sister's a mm. historian. There's, yep, it's, it's hard to get away from. Do you find with when you're studying the historical aspect, when you're chasing those threads mm. and so on, is there a comfort to that? Because, I mean, obviously history and the interpretation of the past changes all the yeah. time, but the past itself can't change. No. You're in no. there with, with something that's stable and secure rather than the present, which is always always changeable. Yeah. And, I don't know, the present, maybe I'm just projecting my own thoughts, but the present will make me uneasy in yeah, a way I, that no matter how grim the story is, at least I know the story is set. Yeah, I get, I get what you mean. I mean, I think one of the pleasures of... Uh, of spending a long time in a particular field is that when you arrive at a new piece of information you kind of automatically know where it fits in to the, to the scheme of things you can place it you've made an intellectual investment and this is you getting a getting a dividend on it but i understand what you're saying the present is so discombobulating there is something inherently reassuring about the stability and the steadiness of history, but that doesn't prevent you coming to new conclusions and new interpretations of history, of being surprised by history. Like, I can remember when I did um, the Warwick Armstrong book, one of the false assumptions that I'd always nourished about the game was that, generally speaking, every generation was slightly more liberal than the last, that we were moving towards a, a position of kind of modern enlightenment. But in fact, yeah. what I found was that in that period leading up to the First World War, cricket had been very commercial and the players had been very mercantile in their instincts yeah. and very proprietorial about their management of the game. And in fact, the stealth takeover by a centralised bureaucracy actually turned that assumption on its head. That in fact there had potentially been a very different outcome for Australian cricket if those disputes in 1906 and 1912 had ended up another way and perhaps also if the First World War had not intervened and those players had remained in the game a little bit longer because by the time Warwick comes back in 1920 he's kind of the last of his tribe, the last with a memory of a player-centric game. Right. And it's a pre... It's like the travelling roadshow version of cricket before it becomes the sort of symbol of exactly. national pride. Exactly. Because I suppose exactly. the nation, yep. per se, yep. doesn't exist yeah. before yep. that. That's right, that's right. You know, the first attempt to establish a central government in Australian cricket fails dismally because it doesn't have the consent of the players. You know, the Australasian Cricket Council never really manages to get off the ground because the players just say, well, you know, you right. need us. You actually need us. One of the challenges so I've had to be interested in your opinion on it. When, when you're, you're researching, particularly you're going back to early 1900s or 1800s, a lot of the time you're relying on newspapers. Yes. And the kind of, I mean, people think media's unreliable now, you know, any, any, yeah, any yeah. crank with yeah. a few pounds yeah. could start a newspaper back yeah. then and it would be like somebody's Facebook page yes. saying wind farms are giving me larynx cancer mm -hmm. or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. The, the, the kind of nutso stuff that you could have there. 
And when you're talking about plays, you can often find things about cricketers in the papers, but they'll be they'll be described in these kind of outray ways. That yes, um, yes. If it's it's either a tribute that oh, this was a great gentleman of the game who was beloved yeah, by yeah, all who yeah, came across yeah. him and never had a crossword That's to right, say, yeah. you know, or occasionally it might be oh, they were a flinty combative character. It's like the minute that a politician like that. dies, they become a statesman. Yes, yeah. exactly that. Um, and and so and William Cooper, who we've been talking on the show about yeah. the last couple of weeks, I was reading descriptions of his bowling that, that he was this most incredible leg spinner who corkscrewed the ball and twisted yeah. it in directions yeah. unknown to yeah. man. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, he started playing cricket at 27. He yeah. was playing for Australia yeah. by 32. Now, yeah. maybe he was an absolute freak prodigy yeah. genius, or maybe they just weren't that good at, yes. at that point. Yes. And so he was able to do okay by bowling consistently on a length. But you, you, you get these these built-up ideas of somebody yeah. and they're like a yeah. punch cartoon caricature of a person yeah. Yeah. not trying to actually get any real information unless you can get access to letters and things like yes. that yes. it's really hard to pin down anything that feels genuine about what a yes. person was yes. like I guess that's a, I mean that's a lot to do about the visual economy of the cricket at that stage when you know, when, a, when someone sat down to write about something they often had to explain to a mass audience what this player looked like who they were, because they would never have been seen. Sure. And the, the actual audience who was capable of seeing live cricket in Australia before the before the advent of mass media was mm. vanishingly small. Right. Uh, It'd be a, a few hundreds, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah, I mean, 1,500 at a ground or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, um, I always remember that great story about uh, Jack Gregory in 1921 when the Australian team are crossing... Uh, the continent on the transcontinental express to get the boat in Perth to, to travel off to England. And they stopped for a civic reception in Quorn, I think it was, and how the visiting deputation raised up a cry for Gregory, we must see Gregory, this you know atomic-powered cricketer. And uh, so they storm the train and they run across Gregory and he says, he went that away, and they, <laughs> they follow because they've never seen him before. So, and you actually, you know, you, when, you, when you write about the past, you really have to come to terms with it being a completely different era, with, with a completely different concept of the consumption of, of cricket. That's right. part of the fascination of it. Of course, we also don't have the relentless press of statistics. Yeah. You know, these days, players tote their statistics round like a, like a ball and chain, don't they? But in those days, uh, well, Gregor is another example. I don't think he even knew that he'd made the fastest test century until David Frith told him in 1972. Right. No idea. Yeah. Those, the, and those kind of records were not in common coinage, not in mm. common currency, and they were pretty meaningless anyway. Yeah. yeah. And even maybe up to, well, at least some decades later, we spoke to Dennis Amos a few weeks ago, yeah. and, and I told him that he had, I think, the seventh highest average for an opener with more right. than 20 innings or whatever yes, it was. Yeah. And he said, oh, I have no idea. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. he, was quite, yeah. he was quite touched yeah. to yeah, me yeah. to say, he said, well, that's yeah. a bloody good list of players yeah. to be on, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think even even up to that point, it, it, that that was something for the real kind of boffins to yes. be yes. reading in the back of their wisdom yeah. every year. Yeah. But it's yeah. not like you could jump on the computer and say, what's their live average, you know, yes. unless you were keeping spreadsheets by hand. Yeah. So it's a different kind of visual environment and it's a different political economy, I think, for, uh, for, for cricket. And you have to kind of come to terms with that in, in each individual era. Yeah. I mean, Bradman's the one who kind of breaks that. Right. Uh, because everyone can quote Bradman's figures. Sure. And everyone at the time could break mm. Bradman's figures down. Right. So uh, Because they would have been being reported yeah. as these marvels yes. they were. Yes, yes. Yeah, there would have been the... The smaller things, you know, the, the, the first player to breach a thousand runs yes. in test matches, or yep. but I suppose a lot of the time test matches weren't necessarily defined by that point as being test matches yes. yet. There were yeah. ones that were added later and ones that had it taken away. Yes, it's, yeah. It's a, it's a plastic. Sort I think people of were milestone conscious. They were conscious of big scores, yeah. record scores being first broken. double hundred, but aggregates, kind of aggregates, because there was some ambiguity about yeah. the status of, uh, yeah. of, of test matches. And because I think there was a bit of an assumption that maybe only Ashes cricket, only Ashes Test matches counted. Yes. If you, you note that in 1938, when Hutton breaks the record at the Oval, mm. Bradman goes over to shake his hand when he passed 334. But the 
actual landmark of the highest test score, Wally Hammond's 336, no one pays any attention to. Right. It's That's only Ashes cricket's only right. Ashes cricket counts. Yeah, and, and beating up are not very good New Zealand yeah, team yeah, in yeah. the 30s. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and you'll notice in those older biographies, like they'll often make a big deal of what happened in tour matches. You know, yes. He, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was, was an incredible performance to take ten wickets and a yes. century in the match yep. against Lancashire. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, those were those were things important. I mean, I guess we're talking about it as people who are living in the past of cricket a lot. Yeah. In the present, I know that people who follow cricket have always been talking about the death of it being imminent and there's been that gloom. Yes. Just from a personal standpoint anyway, the the last few months have felt more like a funeral procession than usual. (laughs) Um, The the rate of change that we're having, the the sort of sliding away of international cricket, the the paucity of test matches in the future tours for most international teams, the, the consolidation of that as being something that only the big three countries will do, the proliferation of T20 yeah. leagues, it, it feels like a, a grim time. Is it more, do you think it's more grim or is it, yeah, I think is it it's just grim. the same old pessimism? I think it's definitely grim. I mean, uh, up until a few years ago, you could actually console yourself that you were living through a pretty good time for Test Creek. Now, the Test matches that were taking place were actually really good. Yeah. People were scoring fast. The results were close. So the last ten years have been maybe the best Test cricket. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, we were both there in India, and it did feel like as though it was just a warmer back for the IPL, yeah. didn't it? And I think pitches have had a bit to do with that. You know, these ridiculous hometown pitches really mean that uh, that getting short, sharp, nasty, brutish, and short Test matches. And I don't think. I've been really looking forward to that series in India, and I walked away from it with a pretty... Uh, I was glad it was over, frankly. You, saw, you actually saw the worst of Test cricket. You saw uh, three hopeless Bunsens, and then this absolutely dismal road. I mean, in some respects, the last Test match was the most disappointing of all. Yeah, if it had been another one of those turners, yeah. it would have felt yeah. like, oh, well, that was the, that yeah, was the that's style it. of the series, that's it. and that's, that's how it, it turned yep. out. Yep. Yep. Uh, or maybe if the last Test match had gone on for 10 days rather than simply for five. <laughs> Bring back the time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, during that series, I didn't have a problem with the, the fast tests and, the, and the, the surfaces that did a lot. It, was, it just seemed like a different style of thing. But there was, there was just that feeling that this didn't matter that much. This no, was true. This was yeah. about... Yeah. Look, you know, making sure that you didn't put too much strain on those players so they could go into the IPL and do what they yeah. had to do and that, yeah. and that this is the real business. Mm. You know, and maybe that's okay, that, that something's more important now, I suppose. But to me, it's more about the other countries that are sidelined oh, test cricket more and more and yeah. playing two yeah. matches here or there yeah. And, yeah. Um, and just doing the bare minimum that they need to qualify yes. for their... WTC commitments and yeah. how long that will yeah. last for anyone. Well, just qualifying for their slice of the pie. It's so, they, you know, they're first in the cafeteria queue at, uh, at ICC. Yeah. That's the only reason why I think a lot of these countries are playing Test Match Cricket, because full members get a bigger slice. Yeah. It feels kind of out of place. Is uh, I've been trying to work out what this feeling is. I've been trying to write something which doesn't really come together. But So the idea of the Australian team specifically as this sort of walking anachronism uh, they're they're out there you, you look at the old images from the 30s and everything's very um it carries across they're out there in the whites they've mm. got the baggy greens there's the look there's the old-fashioned sort of feel of test cricket but it's happening in this age where you know what's behind it you know the amount of money that's yeah. behind it you know yeah. the amount of resistance there is to playing it at all the the paucity of places in which it actually works yes. and it feels like something like doing a performance like some sort yeah. of cosplay by the Australian team to yes. pretend that this is still the pinnacle as they like to call it even though all of the evidence is to the contrary that everything else actually matters more because that's where the money is uh, I don't know I mean I think actually Australian players have the luxury of yeah. thinking that it really does matter I mean well, no, they I can they actually do. discriminate yeah. not, not, not that the players yeah. themselves yeah. Are, are part of a con but that they're part of they're being dressed up that those sort of running their game are dressing them up in the outfits like a day at Sovereign Hill and saying oh remember this this is still authentic the way it used to be although funnily enough they've kind of 
there's this pathetic gesture towards fan engagement by putting numbers on their backs which mean absolutely nothing which merely kind of commodifies the players and makes them seem infinitely replaceable that I found I, I, I can't believe that more people don't get fussed about that I find it an absolute eyesore I find it useful in commentary <laughs> and Bormy says that uh, <laughs> as he gets older he appreciates it more and more but yeah. I just can't believe that it crept into the game with so little debate yeah. around the aesthetics of a game of cricket. You know, aesthetics really do matter to me. There and is something the point for something like test cricket. Well, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When you watch, and I suppose watching tests is different to watching other formats, but when you watch cricket, do you still feel engaged in the same way you, you once did? Has that evolved over time? Well, I don't think you can go on feeling exactly the same way about it once you start writing about it. You immediately begin to watch it with a more kind of analytical and detached air. You have to, just for the sake of your work. Right. There's no point, I think. I don't like those sports writers who are said to have the enthusiasm of the fan. Right. If I want the enthusiasm of the fan, I'll go and yeah. sit with the fans. Uh, <laughs> So, so how good's this play? Yeah, no. yeah. So your relationship to the game changes, sure. and you have to be careful of that because otherwise you, you're undermining something that you really enjoy. And to go back to what I was saying before about the importance of going back to play it, just mm. being able to forget at all about that uh, professional element to, uh, to to my cricket relationship, I find you know very therapeutic. Is it kind of a struggle with cynicism with not trying not to let that creep in too much or disillusionment not cynicism I don't think that I'm cynical I actually think that I'm a uh, a pie-eyed idealist frankly yeah but uh, just find myself being constantly let down (laughs) I find it I still get caught up in the moment watching certain moments of cricket but there are other times when I'm watching it and and all I'm really seeing is all of the mechanisms behind it, all yes, of the strings yes, attached to all yes, of the puppets. Yeah. And so the players are out there, they're genuine, they're, yes. they're doing yep. what they can yep. with as whole a heart as they can yes. muster. But there are so many other people riding on their endeavours, yep. you know, tapping the keg, yeah. as it were, yeah. you know, bleeding out what they can. Yes. That's the part that makes me feel disillusioned. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And less. There are times when I don't enjoy the game. Yeah. In, yeah. Which I suppose is might be inevitable if you love something and then end up working or yeah. involved with the profession. And now you have the uh, the layer of private capital sitting on top of the game, whose relationship to cricket is essentially parasitic, mm. and there's something really kind of disappointing and distressing about that. Uh, also that other people can't see it. Hmm. Parasitic's exactly the word. And the and the bad faith of um, you know talking up test cricket while not actually yeah, doing yeah, anything yeah. to support yeah. it elsewhere. Yeah, the absolute you know, this is the pinnacle of the game yeah. where we're not gonna let our women players play it and we're not gonna argue for any funding to help other countries play more of it. Although when was the actual the last time you heard an administrator say it was the pinnacle of the game? They've mm. actually abandoned that shtick over the last couple of years. It was always a James Sutherland thing, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's been allowed to go into abeyance yeah. because no one can say it with a straight face anymore. Right. Or you'd rather not be held to it yeah. later and yeah. something else yep. comes up. Yep. I think it's actually still in the ICC constitution. But who reads that except for saddos like me? Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast. It is one of the interesting things, I think, because we're all very uh, happy to get stuck into the BCCI and, and often for good reason. But maybe not so, right now, but certainly traditionally they have been one of the big supporters of Test Cricket. Mm-hmm. They... They have been a board that values the prestige attached to it. They've been good tourists. They, yeah, they yep. go to the Caribbean. They, yeah, yeah, they've played. Yep, yep, I mean, yep. you know, I remember Australian supporters through the 90s and 2000s being very snotty about the fact that India would play Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. Yeah, oh, yeah, just getting cheap yeah, runs or whatever. Yeah. But they played Bangladesh and Zimbabwe, unlike Australia, who I never have. did. You know, they, they have actually done 
a lot to be good citizens in a way in terms of in a way play. of course that is a that is a means of exporting their influence sure yeah, that's actually a means of suborning and keeping under control the, the rest of the world's boards. And, the, and depriving those boards of tours is a, is a kind of uh, economic terrorism. So, yeah, I accept that, uh, that the Indian cricket team works very hard. I guess it's a good way to keep the players' minds off the fact that they're only making about what is it, 8% of the, of the total revenues of the IPL? 6%, I think. 6%, right. Yeah, and the national contracts aren't anywhere near what no. you expect them to no. be with the, the revenue that comes in, and the first-class players are still being paid yeah. like first-class players yeah, 50 yeah. years ago. I'm starting to sound cynical. I really shouldn't. But, uh, <laughs> but, I thought you weren't cynical. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I do, well, we often get stuck into the BCCI, and with bloody good reason, quite frankly. Yeah, well, I mean... Because if you can't get stuck into power, mm. then what's the point of having a little tiny voice in the media? Yeah, they should, we, power should always be your enemy. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show, that it's, it's, it's very convenient for them to be able to cast it through a racial lens and say, yeah. oh, criticism's coming from yeah. outside India, we're India, which means that yeah, yeah, you're yeah. racist. But it's, you're not criticising India. No. The country is not the board. No. The board is not no. the country. No. The board would like to think it's yes. the country. The board hides behind the yeah. idea that it's... Because it know, feels as though it owns all the television viewers sure. in India. Yeah. And that's why it's able to demand a king's ransom at, uh, at ICC and the divvying up of the, mm. of the global television rights. I, I suppose a lot of people coming to the conclusion in the last few months that cricket will follow a football model, you know, yeah. international cricket yeah. retreats to World Cups and yeah. bits and yeah. pieces, yeah. league cricket yeah. takes up yeah. the space. Is that Test cricket becomes Wimbledon. Yeah. That's kind of the accepted wisdom right now. The accepted wisdom is often quite stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, which way do you see I think um, is it the, the golden rule of arts and sciences, whoever has the gold makes the rules. Uh, I think that economic forces rather than sort of moral or political forces have, um, have held sway for the last 20 years. Mm. And I don't, see, I, I don't see the existing institutional structures, backward looking as they are, mm. as capable of accommodating that degree of change. Mm. Well, I remember it. A, a line that you had some years ago where if, does cricket exist to make money yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. does it make money to yeah. exist? It I, think, like we, I think we've answered that question, Jeff. We have by this mm. I mean, by this point, it's a totally different world because yeah. by this point, outside owners of teams yes. have come in yeah. and are basically yeah. phasing out national boards yeah. in terms of influence or significance. Yep. It, it used to be a matter of that, that a board which notionally had an altruistic mm. responsibility would run the sport and try to make a return yes. out of it. Now it's a commercial enterprise. Yes. I mean, that that question this seems redundant now. It's yeah. we're, we're in a post-commercial... Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, there's, a, there's actually a pretty reasonable argument that cricket boards should be taxed. I mean, they're, they're for-profit organisations now. Certainly, yeah. Commercial logic seems to rule every decision that Cricket Australia makes. Mm. But the fact that there are private owners getting into all of the yeah, structures yeah, yeah. and all the rest yeah. of it, 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 base, it almost makes the cricket board redundant. Um, it does. In the potentially, anyway. potentially, potentially. Um, I guess the cricket boards still have some degree of control over the calendar. Basically, that's what it's all about now is, is calendar space, mm. selling calendar space, selling your own real estate. Mm. But in fact, what they're doing is they're, they're selling their own inheritance. They're not conscious of their cricket being a set of historical accumulations or accretions. They're not... It's as though the, the, the cricket boards imagine that they kind of invented cricket mm. themselves about 20 years ago. The product they it's came product. up with yeah, yeah. in a focus group. Yeah, yeah. So the BCCI... Um, it's, it's my argument at the weekend was that international cricket... It's not something the BCCI can own because it is, by definition, a kind of a, a world of interdependence. India didn't create international cricket on its own. It's always going to need competitors. It would be in its interest for those competitors to be robust competitors, actually. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, the credible 
the foundation of any sporting contest, yeah. right? It's, it's, a, it's a contest between equals. That's, yeah. that's the sort of fundamental. That's how they define a test match, the 11 v 11, your best players versus yes. our best players, that sort of thing. If, you know, if India are toweling up Namibia in the World Cup final, mm. then, I mean, I'm sure it would still get an audience, but for anybody with a sense of sort of sporting integrity, yeah. it wouldn't yep. mean as much yep. because it would be a mismatch. Yeah. So... It's well, look at the Ashes. Look at the Ashes. The Ashes is the classic example of that. Mm. What's the best Ashes series that we've had? What, the, the one that we've enjoyed most in this mm. country? It's 2005, where we lost. Yeah. Where we lost. And it was an absolute boon to the game in this country. I can remember coming back from England in 2005, and everyone was talking about cricket. Mm. We went from four teams to six at the Arrows because we had so many bloody players. Right. People just could not wait to be playing that oh. summer. And we'd lost. Yeah. We actually... We love a contest. And that's actually, even when the Ashes is one-sided, as it has been in recent years, we can look back to those stages when it was a contest and we hanker for them. Yeah. And we're, we're as excited as I can remember us being about a potential Ashes contest in yeah. 2023. My only fear is that, you know, however good it is, the, the dividend will be immediately washed away by the, by the, the constant content being manufactured because it goes straight from there into a into a World Cup. Yep. And then seven weeks of that. Yeah. Yep. And on it goes. Mm. And then the thing with test matches being always being talked up as like the white rhinoceros of the cricket <laughs> yeah. ecosystem, this endangered species that we're trying to nurse along through its its, its last couple of generations. Mm. I always find this a bit puzzling because well, certainly in the big three countries, there is a huge audience for it. Yep. People still want yep. to watch it. Yep. They don't always want to go, mm-hmm. but they want to watch. Yes. In the other cricket countries, you're not getting huge... Like In some places, say Sri Lanka, you'll get a crowd. It won't be a huge crowd. Mm-hmm. In South Africa, nobody will go. But they'll still watch it. You'll still get big yeah. TV audiences for these games. It's just that those economies don't return enough money out of that TV audience to necessarily make it worth the cost of broadcasting the games, which is hugely expensive, as we know. It it seems far from impossible that they that they should that that they could set up a system where enough sort of management was done of the costs in order to make it possible to play those games and get some sort of return. But it would actually require cricket to be less greedy. And I don't think in the particular capitalist mode that cricket has slipped into, the idea of restraint uh, has any traction at all. Because everyone is so desperate, everyone is so uncertain, everyone is making short-term contracts because they cannot see beyond the horizon. Uh, There's a sense of real kind of anxiety and despair and panic and excitement at the same time about cricket. It's actually become as neurotic as the societies that are playing it. Right. And if, if say, test matches are returning a little bit of money and the T20 League is returning a lot of money, then returning a little bit of money isn't enough. Yeah, that's right. I mean, mean, in in the case of Sri Lanka, uh, their franchise T20 is never going to be particularly big. I think uh, test cricket is still going to be meaningful for them. Well, certainly one day international and T20 international cricket is going to be meaningful for them. It's all, it is slightly different in every country, isn't it? Of course, Pakistan players not being able to play in the IPL, that makes them different again. Sure. The West Indies and players... And is more, yeah. more meaningful to them because it's 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 a gesture back at yeah, yeah, the yeah, defence yeah, as well yeah, to say, we've yeah, got a successful yeah, league happening here. Yeah, yeah. And the forces of equalisation, which I talked about in the column at the weekend, which are inherent to a good sporting contest, are just being completely ignored where international cricket's concerned. Yeah, yeah we're, we're used to accepting that as, as doctrine in our domestic yeah. leagues, our domestic Absolutely. leagues and Absolutely. so on. But it, it's never been applied across cricket. Well, when was probably the best and evenest period of international competition in recent years. Probably the late 90s. Probably the 90s. Probably the 90s, when there actually wasn't an awful lot of money around. The 99 World Cup was not a particular money spinner. Uh, The the Global Cricket Corporation deal is in 2000 at ICC, and that's when you get the first of the big, big international rights deals. And from that point on, kind of the, 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 the competitors kind of begin to 
pull away from, from one another. And it's the last expansion point. Like, I find it interesting that, say, so in the, in the 50s, teams start playing India and West Indies more regularly. Yes. Yep. They're less of a curiosity. Yeah. And then Pakistan and New Zealand start yep. coming through as regular opponents. Yep. That's sort of one expansion period. Yeah. And in the 90s, you get Zimbabwe, Bangladesh mm-hmm. um, coming through. And... And Sri Lanka just before that, but uh, yep. you know, they only really start being treated as a credible opponent in the 90s as well. Yeah. And after that, I mean, have you ever been able to figure out why cricket is so inward-looking and so averse to actually trying to expand beyond lip service? Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, an awful lot of cricket administration's energies is channelled into maintaining a domestic game Mm. and up until very recently there was no real professional management class I mean Australia probably was they didn't really they they didn't have Australian Cricket Board didn't have an employee until 1980 Uh, so it's all volunteer positions and the and the 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 central the, the what should have been a global governing body was only ever a, a kind of meeting, wasn't it? Right. It was something that you put on your best suit for yeah. and went to Lords once a year. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a strategic game. And the world was kind of big enough. I don't think there was any sense of cricket competing with other games. Right. The, the, the competition was entirely internal. Now I think there is more of a sense of cricket having to measure up against other forms of, of sport and, and entertainment. Sure. But that was not an exogenous influence in earlier periods. And cricket's complex. Yeah. Cricket's complex and it's got a whole bunch of cultural entailments that actually makes it quite difficult to... It symbolises certain things to different cultures that right. actually may be a little bit unpalatable. One of the interesting things to me about Afghanistan is that you know, its development is as a cricket country through Pakistan, not through England. Mm. In fact, if England had tried to introduce cricket in Afghanistan, it would have been bound to fail. Mm. Because it would have been so... Yeah. It would have been a cultural Cultural overtones, yeah. yeah. But this, this is what interests me. Like, the, there's, there's, like, this paranoia with cricket administrators that cricket is shit, basically. Yeah, they all say yeah. Thing, yeah. That, that yeah. It's unlovable, it's yep. too hard to understand, yep. nobody could possibly get interested yeah. in it. Yeah. Uh, you have to do this so the kids will get interested yeah. in the game. Which, and, and that's the part that I don't understand, because no. all of us who like it were kids who got interested in yeah, the game yeah, yeah, as yeah, kids. Yeah. You know, we... We were able, in my generation, we were able to uh, really get interested in David Byrne scoring at a strike rate of 42. Yep. And and that was okay. You know, that that was enough to. It's like they're constantly underestimating children. Cricket is its own best investment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and the part that I don't get is, is, okay, so test cricket's too slow and too boring, but football's the most popular sport in the world, and people will sit there and watch an ill old draw. Football is a sport that. Yeah. Where you wait and you wait and you yeah, wait, yeah, and you yeah. have delayed yeah. gratification, and then yeah. you maybe occasionally yep. have yep. a big moment of gratification, yep. Yep. which cricket is like. You yep. sit there and you wait for an hour, and then three wickets fall in two overs, and suddenly, yeah. Yeah. suddenly the game's alive, right? They're very similar in that sort of way. And yes, watching a full day of Test cricket is like watching three football games back to back. But yeah. you don't have to watch the full day of Test no, cricket. No, you don't. You can watch. No, you don't. You can go away and do something it's else. Part of the charm. So. Yeah. Although if you're writing about it, Jeff, you're thinking, fuck, yeah. I wish something would happen so I have something to write about. <laughs> but but it's, I, I haven't really ever been able to fathom the talking down of it when the people who are talking it down are people who have been captured by it. Yeah. Clearly it can yeah. capture people yeah. as it was. Yes, yeah. Part of that's to do with, the, I think, the sort of a generalised sort of theory of bureaucracy as the amounts of money in the game expand and the administrative classes multiply, there are more and more people out there who are saying, we just did this, we just did that. Maybe we could add this. Maybe they're creating work for themselves. It's like um, talk to a modern player about, uh, about coaching and they'll all sort of say out of their breath that, you know, a lot of coaches justifying their jobs around here not adding terribly terribly much and often actually just confusing things right because you know expenditure rises to meet income and you've got to be seen to be doing something yeah yep and anybody coming into a job has to change something yeah. in order to yep. Yep. justify their arrival right do you feel like it's pointless sometimes we're sort of sitting on the sidelines commenting on things 
and I suppose when you, if you read history and you see it, you read the old papers, you can see the lasting yeah, value yeah, sometimes yeah. of, of comments. Yeah. And there are other times where, you know, I, on this show particularly, we're, we're talking about these issues, but you know, it doesn't change anything. Things don't get better. It, it, no, that's the dispiriting no. bit as well. I don't know. Do you? No, because I've never really had an outsized sense of cricket's importance. No one lives and dies. It's ultimately it's an indulgence for us to be as interested as we are in the game. Yeah. And I've also never had a particular fixation on my own importance as a voice. You know, I have a very tiny little voice that is drowned in the general cacophony. And if I never wrote about cricket again. Mm wouldn't be a huge loss. You know, life would go on, providing I could okay. go on playing it. Right, which mm. nobody has bought out no. the errors yet. No, no, no. Yeah, so there was that note in the book about yeah, you'd rather not think of yourself as a cricket writer yeah, 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 a writer yeah. who sometimes yeah. writes about the yeah. cricket. Does it feel like it swallows you up sometimes? Is it? Do you, do you have to escape from it and go and do something else to to establish your oh, identity? Oh, for sure. I mean, being... when, I, when I get away from it, I get away from it completely and I just don't think about it at all. The, the, the only pressure that comes as a result of having done it for a long time is that you don't want to repeat yourself. You know, fundamentally, it's a pretty simple game, isn't it? And we endlessly over-intellectualise it in order to find some new way <laughs> to explain it. So very familiar, very routine activities. So, so How do you write another Nathan Lyon took a five for peace? Absolutely, absolutely. How many synonyms are there for yep. hitting the fucking ball? At least I've never used the word smote. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's a consolation. Yeah. How many synonyms are there for win? Yeah. One, victory. Yeah. Yeah. Victory or maybe yeah. triumph. Yeah. And then you're out of options. But in a way, that's its own challenge. That's actually part of the fun. You're, you're working with a very small range here mm-hmm. on a pretty comparatively small mm-hmm. subject. And right. it's like... Writing poetry being a remember, it's like being a member of the Ramones. You got two chords. Yeah. You can stretch it over ten albums. <laughs> You're going to do two verses. Exactly. Two of the four lines will be repeated, and they're fucking great. Yeah. Within limitation, we can yeah. find expression. Yeah. The infinity of the universe is yep. uh, revealed as you mm. go inwards as yep. well as as you go outwards. Warney right. only needed two balls. Mm-hmm. He had one that turned and one that went straight. We can leave it there, order another coffee and go about our afternoon. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. This is the final word. Thanks to Gideon Hake for taking the time to be part of the show. A reminder that the book is called On the Ashes. It'll be out on June 6th through Alan and Unwin. And for us, you can back the show in at patron.com slash thefinalword and be part of all of the um, fun with our online community that's happening there. Jeff Lemon and usually Adam Collins, this has been The Final Word. Plenty coming up over the next few weeks, so keep an ear on your feed as the English International Summer gets underway. Oh, man, he-